time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Oh, gosh. You want to welcome people to our podcast? Me? Yeah. Absolutely. I want to welcome everyone to our podcast. It's almost Mardi Gras. Oh, the important things in life. Oh, well, Lunar New Year, right? It's a big, big, big weekend. Are you going? For a lot of the world. No, there's nothing happening. It's COVID time. Oh. They're not even allowed to sell alcohol to go in the bars for COVID. Yes. That's one of the distinguishing and lovely features of New Orleans, that you can walk into any bar anytime and take the drink with you. <laughs> you don't have to sit around and wait for the scenery to change. You can change the scenery yourself. Yeah, I was really surprised when, we, when you took me around. I'll just take that drink to go. And I'm like, what? You'll take a drink to go? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go for a few mile like, walk anyway. Like, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, sadly, there's a little kibosh on that, but it's still a lovely time and celebratory time in the city. But anyway, welcome everyone to... Market meditations. <laughs> As I meditate now that we're talking about alcohol and in the world, yeah, exactly. Well, today's an interesting conversation, right? Because um, we've got Dan with us, um, who is a fertility doc, and he's done a bunch of stuff in the startup space, including starting one of the largest. Um, uh, maybe you want to describe uh, um, all the affiliations you have, Dan, but. Including starting one of the largest um, uh, places where doctors congregate to raise money for their new ideas, um, and so you know, Dan, maybe actually, why don't you introduce yourself for us? Okay. Um, <laughs> don't be shy, Dan. And don't be shy. Yeah, and I want to hear about your companies too, right? Along the way, so like, if this is a thirty-second intro, I'm just going to ask you, and Chris and I'll have the podcast without you. Got it. You, <laughs> you got to tell us about all the cool stuff you're up to. Cool. Okay. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm Dan, I'm a fertility doctor, which means, uh, I did my training in OBGYN and extra training in fertility. Uh, those who don't know fertility, that's, you know, the buzzwords are things like egg freezing and IVF, genetic testing, things like that. Um, I would say my first love was mathematics. I, I did a, a degree in mathematics and clinical epidemiology. Um, and then I think I was never diagnosed with ADHD because I'm like always doing the next thing and futuristic kind of thinking. Uh, so while being a fertility doctor, uh, I started a company called Future Fertility. It's the application of artificial intelligence inside the IVF lab. We can dive deeper into that. Um, you're headed towards a 30-second intro. Why don't you dive deeper? Oh, Jesus. The pressure is incessant. Well, no, he's done a bunch of stuff, too, and I want him to get to Halo Health, but I want him to unpack these things so then we can have yeah. a richer All right, Fair enough. But I'll tell you the origin story of Halo Health. The origin story of Halo Health is, is a guy like me who's a physician who did his own startup and, you know, figuring it out along the way. Met a whole bunch of amazing founders in the med tech world who clearly – didn't have a foot in the clinic, didn't know doctors, didn't re didn't realize their solution didn't have a problem or their problem didn't make sense. Met a whole bunch of physicians who were super clever, a little burnt out, had a little bit of extra money, tired of buying cannabis stocks or another apartment. And I thought, <laughs> you know, why don't we put everybody together in a room and, you know, more likely these startups are going to, like, I just think it's 
uh, quote unquote strategic money. If you early on, you can sort of set them in the right path, get the first customers, get feedback. So that's Halo Health. It's not for profit. We're just gathering a whole bunch of entrepreneurial physicians, a whole bunch of startups, and putting them in a room. Mm-hmm. Wait, but now go to future fertility. Go back. And then okay, we'll now go back. So future fertility, and then we can talk about your new gig, and then, sure. and then uh, fertility rates and why they're dropping, and then we can finally get to the. Good okay, so so my gig is um, I have a few gigs. So I'm the medical director of the Fertility Partners. It's Canada's largest network of IVF clinics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm like. I just in love with my job. I wake up really excited and happy. They're very pro innovation and big system problems. So I really love what I do. My own baby is Future Fertility. Again, it's the application of AI in the fertility space. I mean, usually, I mean, medical AI, you hear that buzzword all the time. Generally speaking, if you ask me, most AI is amazing. It's mostly used to make something faster, cheaper, automated. Um, our application is a little bit unique in the sense that like when you look at a woman's eggs, there is no visual scoring system. So even trained embryologists can't tell the difference between a good egg or a bad egg. It doesn't exist. And I thought, how is that possible? And that's a perfect, you know, vision machine learning problem. So what we're doing is we're creating a solution that just can't be done by a human. So I think that's a really unique angle. Um, and so that's one. I'm also uh, involved with a, a new company called Bird and Bee, um, and they're sort of all about access to care and education. It's a direct-to-consumer um, startup, you know, educating women at the very upstream. You know, I, I consider myself downstream. If all else fails, come see me. I'll try my best. But this is upstream of everybody who's trying and confused and struggling. Well, an involved founder of. Right. One of the founders. Yes. All right. <laughs> Involved, quite involved. Quite involved. (laughs) So involved, he doesn't sleep much. I mean, this guy's working 16 hours a day, kind of almost no matter what. And it's not because he needs to, it's because he's really interested in the innovation portion. I I like it. I I haven't turned on Netflix in months. (laughs) (laughs) uh, So, Dan, with Halo, um, you throw a bunch of guys in the room together. What are your yeah, uh, goals or what are you hoping to He's not describing it well. It's like an aggregator for, for we'll call it healthcare executives, mostly doctors, mm-hmm. to fund startup ideas since they already have a background in what's going on. And again, he's a founder there. While he's not running day-to-day operations, he was one of the six or seven people to kind of help put it together. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's like much easier. I would say there's three pillars to it. The, the first one is like obviously like angel investing and in these early stage uh, startups. Mm-hmm. The second one, which I think is critical, is like the the connections, the networks. You know, you're, you're working on a neuro imaging uh, at home device. You know, here's ten neurologists who are happy to try it with their patients in the clinic. That's you know, we, could, we probably saved you nine months and a hundred hours. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 sometimes just. You know, these early startups need that critical advisor. The thing about it, you know, in the world of physicians, we all know a thousand physicians. They're one phone call or text away. But if you're not in that world, it's kind of, you know, the only physician you know is your family doctor or your cousin's uncle or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Um, take us through, you know, a little bit. So one of the reasons I thought this was an interesting conversation I wanted to bring is because obviously people are becoming more and more familiar with the fact that fertility rates are plunging in this country and in this world. And so your role is becoming more and more important in the propagation of our species, literally. <laughs> I mean, you can't say that with very many people. 
Yeah. Certainly our role, you know, Chris and my role every day is not so important to the propagation of the species. <laughs> right, right. We got to get you to Japan and Italy stat. <laughs> uh, and, you know, obviously you're doing all of these things because you care about the entire, you know, uh, value chain even doesn't seem, it seems like a terrible divorcing word from what's actually going on. You care about people actually having babies and healthy babies and, and, and doing well with it. And I'm kind of curious where that motivation came from. I'm kind of curious about, you know, what it is you're thinking about as you're, you know, inevitably in the next three years, you're going to call me and say, hey, I'm starting a new startup. And we're going to bounce ideas off of each other. Uh, so yeah. I figured, like, I might as well just learn more um, about your lens for what makes you interested in invo being involved in yet a new project. You know what? I, I, I think if I have to, like, uh, if I have to connect the dots going backwards, you know, it starts with, like, a mathematical mindset. Like, to, to me, first of all, I went, I went to mathematics to get into medical school because I have a Jewish mother. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I didn't even apply. I, well, you, I, I can understand the medical school part. The mathematics was your love. Right. Well, so it was strategic. So to get into med school, you need some high grades. And to me, mathematics was one of those courses where you, you're either going to get a zero or a hundred. Mm -hmm. If you know the rules, you know how to, you know, if you know how to multiply, you can multiply any numbers out there. So that's kind of the mindset I always went into. Mm -hmm. And to me, I always sort of approached everything like that. Like fertility to me was like a puzzle. So, you know, we have an end product and we have ingredients and where's the limiting factor and stuff like that. And as you get deeper, you know, they say as you get to like the edge of like your profession, that's when the, the interesting stuff happens, the innovation. So I've got examples of future fertility. During my training, when they were teaching me about this and that, and they were like telling me about the eggs, and I said, wait a minute, where's the egg scoring system? And they just said, it just doesn't exist. I was like, well, what do you mean it doesn't exist? Why doesn't it exist? I, I was a very why, like I was a very annoying person to study with in medical school. <laughs> you know, usually people are, you know, memorizing that differential diagnosis and this and that. And I said, like, I'm never going to remember all that. Just if you explain to me the why, I'll figure it out when the question comes up. Because I'll, it's, it's kind of like chess. If you know the chess moves, then you can be a grandmaster. You know? mm -hmm. That's sort of how I always approach it. So all these, you know, Neil jokes about so many starmas, but really all it is is me identifying problems that people haven't attacked them. In the entire value chain. In the value chain. I put it in quotes because it just seems... <laughs> Like a terrible way to describe bringing life to, to the world. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I love it. You know, for me, fertility, one of the reasons I went in there was like, it was a, I always like the objective stuff. So again, going back to the math, like uh, to me, stomach aches, depression, you know, all important, but it was, it was no objective way for me to measure it, right? It was, it was dependent on what you tell me and what you tell me depends on how you experience the world. Yeah. And I found that more frustrating for my personality. I, I like the the hormones. And if I if I change this lever, this goes up. And if I change that, this goes up. I like the ultrasound findings. I like the blood work. It, it was just more concrete for me. Mm -hmm. And I thought with that, I could like, mm -hmm. it, it just works better for me. The, the other part is fertility is like a really new field. Like if you think about it, we've been, you know, we've been treating pneumonia in one way or another for hundreds of years, maybe not that well mm -hmm. until antibiotics came up. <laughs> Leeches are out now. <laughs> but like the first IVF baby is only 40 something years old. That's like a relatively new field. And I thought to myself that that's where I want to go because in my career, I'll be part of these like incredible changes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So obviously you're part of the, you're, you said you're the chief medical officer for the largest fertility clinic in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious about whether the trends are getting better with all the data you're gathering, at least within your clinics. Um, and, you know, what people should actually know, you know, on, on this podcast, we have people who potentially trying to have kids, but we also have uh, grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, what, what should these folks know? Tell us both about the trends first and then about the... Yeah, um, I mean, I actually have to take a step back. I think one thing that's amazing is that we're actually talking about it. Like three guys on a podcast talking about fertility. <laughs> probably <laughs> 10 years ago wouldn't have happened, which right, is pretty cool. Right. I mean, I think fertility is kind of like where mental health was a decade ago. Like, you know, now people talk about, which is amazing. And, you know, people ask for help and people, you know, have skills to get through it like fertility now i think is just starting to be talked about more and more it's like i went through it uh you don't hear as much i'm going through it and you definitely don't hear so much of i I failed it um at least it's talked about which i think is amazing Mm -hmm. so that's one trend that you see it's like people actually there's no shame to it there's no stigma anymore you know back in the day it used to be like you know, the woman goes for testing and treatments and then, you know, a year and a half later, her partner will get tested instead of all at the same time. So I think the, the breaking down the stigma is huge because A, you don't have to suffer silently and B, you're, you've got earlier intervention, right? Like, whereas before people would, you know, try on their own for four years and then go to a doctor here, if they sense something's not right, they go to their doctor, which I think is super smart. So the conversation is a big trend. Um, the other trends we're seeing, I mean, you want, do you want to know medical trends or are you talking like business can operational you, trends? Like, can you, go ahead. Yeah. What's the larger backdrop? I mean, how has for, how have fertility rates uh, trended or dropped or over the last, say, decade or two decades? Yeah, so I would say for the general population, the definitely the infertility rates are dropping. And this uh, is just North America or this is global? Uh, I would say generally global but there's definitely regional changes that the number one i mean the, the answer in medicine is always we don't know but mm-hmm. but the the, the the clear trends we're seeing is actually the the role of like contraception like before people were you know didn't have as much contraception there were unplanned pregnancies and and things like that now contraception is amazing it's changed the whole world it's given people options and choices and and, and people you know female fertility is a real thing female age and fertility. So just the, the delaying of trying, and we see that as a trend as people get educated and, mm-hmm. and um, that's been a huge part. Also, you know, male sperm quality has gone down dramatically over the last, I don't know, decade or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one again knows why. I mean, the popular theories are, you know, our crazy environment and, and the food, the, the processed foods that we're eating and our sedentary lifestyle, but no one really knows. So it's a combination of things, which is why you're hearing about it all the time. Like almost everybody's struggling. Mm-hmm. I, I'm curious about the, the rates at your clinic versus, you know, the his, rates that most people are having by themselves. So, right. I, I've read the stat that fertility rates since the sixties have, have dropped by half literally. Yeah. Uh, in, in the United States, I imagine it's similar for Canada, yeah. uh, where you're looking. Um, I think that's a fair estimate, but just to clarify, I think they mean in the general population. So people trying, it's not succeeding. But in fact, the, the fertility industry, the the high quality IVF clinics, our are, are, are success rates keep getting better and better. Like uh, 
our technology is getting better, our knowledge is getting better, our, our pharmaceutical interventions are getting more personalized. I mean, don't get me wrong, there's going to be a limit, there's going to be people which unfortunately won't succeed with, but in general, we, we are definitely continuing to improve. So would you say people coming to a fertility clinic have a 20% more higher chance of having children or a 30% or is there, do you guys keep measure of that? Or yeah. you know, do, you, do you mean to ask um, a 20% or 30% increase over not, over doing nothing? Yeah, I mean, these people really couldn't have children now they're coming in. And so a third of them are having children. I mean, that seems like a good outcome. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm answering this like a politician because it's not I'm not just giving you a number, but I think the context is important. So, when you see patients or a couple, it really depends on the situation, right? So, if you think of like a good example, someone, let's think of a young woman who doesn't have regular cycles, so she doesn't ovulate. So, actually, everything's perfect, like great sperm, great egg, good tubes, good uterus. It's that she, she's just not releasing an egg. So, on her own, she's at zero percent. I have to do very little intervention to make her ovulate. And that's like, that's, a, that's an easy win for everybody. So in that scenario, I'm going from zero to like 80, 90%. Mm -hmm. If it's something where like, so again, if, if it's something we can intervene and overcome, lots of success. If it's something technology can't overcome, we're no better. A good example is like age-related fertility. Someone who's 44 years old, you know, we say they're natural and imagining everything else is fine. We say their natural chance is about 1% a month, so it might happen, but that's just their natural chance. Even with our intervention like IVF, maybe we're at 2%. So right there, the delta. So we haven't found a way to reverse you know, age-related decline. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'll put the range of 1% to 90%. <laughs> <laughs> Are, are you seeing that that people are working on the age-related trends? I mean, we see yeah. it, people wanting to live forever. So is it also happening and people want to have kids until they're 60? Yeah. I, I mean, one one amazing – I don't know how you – I don't know if you guys will find this amazing, but I think one amazing revolution that happened was the ability to use an egg donor. Because if you – to us, it's not a – you know, it doesn't sound that magical. But if you think about it, it's like taking someone else's eggs – with your partner's sperm, making an embryo, you carrying the pregnancy, that's pretty, like, 50 years ago, who would have thought about that, right? Um, that we think can overcome. That's usually our, like, when, when treatment doesn't work, IVF doesn't work, that's usually our next um, intervention. For some people, that's incredible that that exists, and they can't wait to start a family that way. For some people, financially, personally, religiously, that's not going to be an option. Um, there is some... You know, the holy grail for us in the world of fertility is the idea that female are born with a certain number of eggs, and as they age, quality and quantity decrease. So there, there isn't like an egg stem cell. There's no rejuvenation. So it's like a set time. We always tell patients, even the most fertile person in the world, eventually ages, eventually struggles, eventually goes through menopause. So no one has been able to delay menopause. No one's been able to find that egg stem cell that regenerates, but for sure in our lifetime. Hmm. We've got to study the hydra more. Yeah. <laughs> the one thing that doesn't age. Yeah. 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 But uh, that's fascinating. What is uh, uh, what is it now for you, Dan, that gets you most excited in terms of new technologies or windows into uh, improving fertility rates? Yeah. 
you know, I, I, I feel like the last five years has like been 40 years, but you know, I started, I'm actively involved in my startups, Bird and Bee and Future Fertility. Um, but I also get a real kick now, probably where you guys are at your stage of career. I, I'm, I'm a little bit younger than you guys, but like the joy of helping the other people. So I get a lot of startups coming up to me in the fertility space. And I, you know, it's like all a supportive, warm family and like, how can I help and what do you work? So I, I love seeing what other people are, are working on. So I'm excited to meet new people. That stuff really gets me going. The reason I sort of changed my role from a clinician to like a medical director of this big network is like, I, I love working on the big system problems. Like if I hear consistently across the, the field that, uh, you know, like, you know, the patient, the patients feel alone when going through it. And I was like, well, why don't we just solve that? Like, how do we make them feel less alone? What, what's everybody doing now? Or, yeah, I, I, I like the big system props. I see, I like seeing patterns and, and seeing what we can do to tweak them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. And, and you've gone deep with bird and bee. What's your vision for bird and bee and how will that help us change the world of fertility? Yeah, so 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 Burden B, I'm super excited about. We're we're just coming out of stealth mode now, um, and this is like an upstream opportunity. So this is not people coming to see me, the fertility doctor. This is the ten times more who are trying at home. Again, these are the patients who don't know where to go. It's if you've ever done it at home, it's kind of like you have you have to be your own advocate, like. This is, this is this website for this, and this is where I get pills for that, and this is where I get uh, urine sticks for that. So we're, we're sort of we're defragmentation, we're defragmenting it all into one thing, education, support. But the interesting part is what we're, we're focusing both on the diagnostics. Like this is at-home, urine-based, very quick um, insights. A good example of that is like sperm tests. Okay? So I'm hopefully teaching you guys something about fertility, but one thing I don't think every viewer knows is like you can't tell anything about your sperm based on anything. Like you can't tell based on your anatomy, sexual function, sexual drive. Like there's like the the semen that you see, you just can't tell, right? The only way to know anything about your sperm is you've got to put it in the microscope. So I can't tell you how many men I see where you know couples not getting pregnant. You do an initial testing, and he unfortunately has no sperm. It's not his fault. We got to figure it out. We can intervene, but really, that's been two years of distress and heartache of no success, where they could have started the whole journey earlier. So that that's like a good example of like the earlier you have information at your home, the earlier you can intervene if you need to, and the, the more successful you're going to be. So that's the diagnostic side. The uh, treatment side is even more exciting to me. There's two components to it. One of them is like the nutraceuticals. So we all have seen over-the-counter uh, prenatal vitamins. I mean, that's important. It has folic acid. I'm not telling anyone to not do that. But there's definitely a lot more you can do, a lot more personalized, right? Like a 22-year-old and a 42-year-old need different things to take. Um, someone who's had multiple miscarriages versus not. There, There's things to optimize that can be done, and you don't have to wait so long to get that sort of intervention. And another cool concept we're playing around with is kind of, you know, you've seen it several places where it's kind of, I don't like this term, but maybe like skip the doctor. Um, so you've seen it, the other term people use like lifestyle medications, whether it's for, you know, ED, Viagra, or, uh, you know, your birth control pills, you know, 
there's a strong argument that any access, any barrier to get those medications are just harming the patient, right? Um, a good example of that for me is diclectin. So diclectin is a nausea medication in early pregnancy. Um, I can't think of one patient in my entire career where I said, you know what? You can't have diclectin because of ABC. Like, right. uh, the risks are too high. Yeah, the risks are like, that doesn't happen. In fact, every time I write the prescription, I say, why do they need me to write this prescription? Like, why isn't it over the counter? The poor woman waited a week and a half to come see me just to get this. So it's a good example. So that there's a lot of these fertility focused interventions. You don't need to wait a year and a half to see the doctor. Let, like, give it to the people. Let them try. Of course, in an educated way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's really great. Dan, I, I really appreciate you joining us today, just sharing a little bit about uh, the stuff you've got your fingers in, literally. Um, trying to, <laughs> trying to, well, literally trying to bring more life to the world and being yeah. a um, he, 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 most days where I've tried to catch up with him, you know, he's literally worked 16, 17 hour days, no question, no worry, excited to continue to work. Only thing is sleep, sleep is required at some point. So his body tries to shut him down to head towards sleep. That, 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 he'd work more hours. Neil, you just got the next startup. So what we need a pill to just do REM. <laughs> none of this, non REM, just condense it. Right, right, right. 12 hour. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask one last question, Dan. Yeah. I mean, as a mathematician, and and generally um, understanding that this is a still kind of a, a novel or new field, what is the quality of the data um, you're dealing with, and have you seen that trend improve? Uh, that's like a great question. So you know, the, the the joke we always sort of say in statistics and research is like garbage in, garbage out. So. Mm-hmm. We are all, you know, me especially, like I'm obsessed over the quality of the data. Mm-hmm. And I think what you see in our field is sort of like a clinic sort of amalgamating and trying to grade on one network or one electronic record. So the data is getting better. Like uh, here's a good example. So, you know, let's say 20 years ago when our success rates weren't so good, we would put like two or three embryos in, hoping that one of them takes, right? Mm-hmm. And let's say one of them take. I don't know which embryo it was, right? And so, like, it's really hard to know. That's a good example. I couldn't study that scenario. Whereas now we're doing, like, sing- we're tracking each egg and doing single embryo transfers. And, you know, with the electronic records, we can really track it. And the data is getting much, much cleaner. And we're getting really interesting insights. But I, I agree. I, I think the, the the data massaging and the, the, the clean data is going to be so important for the future. Yeah. Yeah. It, that... Uh kind of makes me excited you know just what you were talking about not having data on what's a good egg versus a bad egg or the sperm counts or the the virility or vitality of the sperm or all those kinds of measures which would be critical to furthering your work so yeah you know i i always say the same line which is like if you can't measure it you can't improve it so like let's measure what we can look for patterns try something if it fails pivot and try something else Mm-hmm. Dan, thank you. It's yeah. great to have you. Thanks for your time. Thanks for hosting. I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Great to have you. It was great. Thanks, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Just you and I, Chris. Hey, Neil. You can see why I loved uh, Dan and 
and why I wanted him on the podcast. I like his energy. Nice guy. Yeah. And his like, father is Jewish. I guess his dad is too. <laughs> he, he also is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you got a Jewish mother, Ace. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. I don't know if the Gujaratis measure it the same way. Oh, by, uh, no, I don't know. No. No, I'm joking. It's not a it's not a religion. <laughs> well, <laughs> it could be. I mean, yeah, it could be. It's its own religion, Chris, just like Mardi Gras. Right, right, right. right. Uh, what, where should we start? You want to talk about the market? You want to go through the news? Uh, My goodness. Go. What? Well, you know, I sent a uh, 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 quick uh, link to, to that article from Bloomberg. We're on live, so but I'll happily answer the same question live now. We can go right through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do you think that uh, larger VC funds, which are now swimming upstream or downstream into the seed stage, will cannibalize smaller funds that focus specifically on seed investments? I think inevitably anytime there's um... – extra alpha to be had, somebody's going to come try and enter that market. Hedge funds coming into later stage rounds. I remember reading my first headline where Fidelity joined a, a C round of a company. And I was like, huh, what, really? Or a D round of a company. I, I was really confused. Why is a mutual fund company uh, or you know, a company that has no business and venture capital there? And well, of course, there's, there's some alpha to be had. The company, uh, venture capital is kind of a strange term um, because a lot of people think about it as, hey, we, we're, we're trying to get a company at start so we can get it on, on its legs and move forward. But a lot of later stage companies are really just good companies that are now trying to accelerate even further, right? That's what venture capitals become more of funding. So why was Fidelity joining that round? Well, the company had plenty of revenue and uh, they liked the approach on why they thought they could help grow the company 30% year over year over the next four years or whatever that was. Mm -hmm. um, so am I worried about big VCs coming in? No, big VCs don't really make a lot of money in general, right? This is the all the articles I've been reading over the last number of years, including famously Andreessen Horowitz. Right. Um, is somebody making money there? Yes. Is it a good bet if you're a pension fund? Absolutely. Um, but does it make sense for it to be benchmark against smaller funds? Not really, because the smaller funds don't have that massive cost structure. They aren't going after the seed through, you know, F rounds of companies. Mm -hmm. They aren't trying to buy Skype, right? Which was a famous flip that Andreessen Horowitz was involved in. Right. Um, so, you know, they're kind of in slightly different businesses. Andreessen Horowitz is, you know, more akin to private equity for a lot of their profit than to just pure venture capital. Trying I think to that's true, not just to single them out, of course, but they're the most emblematic of this. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I, I think they're great. By the way, I'm I'm using them because I really quite like them. Like, and, really and you know, they've there's been a lot of publication about their numbers and what's been happening. So, yeah, and so I, you know, I think a smaller fund, um, and they, they show emerging managers tend to do better, you know, over time than uh, established managers. People who are on their first three, four funds are going to do better than people who are on their fifth, sixth, seventh funds, um, in general as a class. Um, <laughs> Most smaller funds start because people, you know, see a problem in a market. Correct. And either they were at a fund or they were an operator. We're seeing a lot more of that. Or they were a consultant. We see plenty of that. And they say, okay, look, this isn't being done correctly. We want to focus on this. Um, and they build a thesis around it. And they tend to attract more deal flow. 
are we going to miss out on deals? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'm not worried about that, right? Mm-hmm. I'm worried about building value in the deals we get in. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Right? Um, yeah, and That's really the thing we all need to focus on. Everything else is extraneous. Yeah, and somebody else asked me one day, what happens if IP can no longer be your stronghold? You know, I, I regularly, just for fun, consider what a fund would, might look like where we weren't interested in IP at all. <laughs> it went the other way in bio, right? Is, is that possible? I think mm-hmm. it will be at some point. Um, it might be fun to run the two strategies right by each other, not not just because it's interesting to see a, uh, a contrast, but um, because I actually think maybe two strategies could work at the same time. Yeah, and and you know your advantages can um, change over time. Well, I mean, talk about your advantages, you know, over the last twenty years versus the way they are today, right? Obviously, you must see the market better than you did twenty yeah. years ago. Yeah, you know, Bill Miller was asked um, once what his advantage was as an investor because his Clipper fund had been outperforming for years. And he broke it down, I thought, very nicely. He said, there's three advantages as an investor you might have. One is informational, right? So, you know, do you have information sooner or faster? I guess the prime example of that would be the Rothschilds (laughs) built a banking dynasty because he had faster carrier pigeons. Um, He knew when the war was won or lost um, before anyone else did. And you've got people who trade even unethically on insider information and of course, others who build just armies of uh, insiders or supercomputers or whatever to front run. So that's a difficult uh, game uh, to arm yourself to win. Um, it's tremendous competition for an informational advantage. The other is analytical. So you can look at the same data, but with a more creative or different take um, or look deeper even than someone else. Um, Maybe an accountant has one sort of frame of reference and sees all expenses as the same and you see them quite differently. Um, And analytically, you can say, hey, this expense actually is going to build value, (laughs) just categorized as such or something like that. So analytically, you can look deeper. And like I've always talked about reading the footnotes to give yourself a really deep understanding of what's happening within the company. And even, you know, like... um, Lee Lu of Himalayan Capital has famously said, know everything. <laughs> Call the neighbors of the CEO and find out. Yeah, I, don't, I don't go to that depth, but we go to more depth than we've ever met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think he's he's probably, he, he might not, <laughs> he might not be just making an analogy. You might well, be, I have admiration for that saying, right? Like, call the neighbors. Like, why didn't I think of that? That's a right, 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 right. <laughs> like the neighbor, right? But, and the, the last one, which is often uh, not even talked about, is behavioral. So for me, investing in public markets does require a lot of patience, which is always in short supply. Um, you know, I remember reading this biography of John D. Rockefeller, and um, I think he still holds the record as the wealthiest American because at his peak, his net worth was equal to one quarter of our GDP. Um, around 1913 or so. So um, that's a pretty large amount of wealth concentrated in <laughs> the hands of one person. But uh, he even said it, like, I'm extremely patient. Warren Buffett has said it. These are um, uh, attributes that allow you, you know, with, and you see it. You're in 
seed investing, you can see what's going to develop three years from now or four years from now much better than you can see three months from now when there might be a COVID outbreak or a trade war with China or one of your companies can't get the supply chain quite right in the next six months, but they can work that out over a year and a half or, you know. I, I don't think I can quite see three or four years out because we're already kind of at the edge. You could look at papers and make some guesses and I think there's some good statistical analysis out there, but we, we do follow companies for a long time. The most recent investment we made in a company, I guess we haven't disclosed yet, um, we followed for 14 months <laughs> before we wrote a check. Mm -hmm. couldn't, but most, most VCs couldn't do it, right? And we missed a round. Um, and we maybe missed a, a, you know, another round and finally joined the investment. But mm -hmm. you know, it was only when it finally made sense to us that we did it. Yeah. And, and you know, other behavioral investment ideas too, like you were saying with VCs, I think there's, uh, you know, uh, Charlie Munger's famous speech about the psychology of human misjudgment is something I highly recommend all our listeners to attend to. And you can find it on YouTube. It's a We'll put it in the, in the link here in the notes. Yeah, a very famous speech he gave to the Harvard Law class of 95, I think. Um, so it's a 25, 26-year-old almost uh, speech he delivered, but it's one of the best investment speeches ever given. And of course, it's not directly about investing. Um, it's just about the pitfalls that all of us as human beings suffer from, um, things that are very obvious like denial or... Um, uh, hewing too much to an idea, especially one that's hard won or, you know, several things. Um, reciprocity, um, recency bias, availability heuristics. But he talks through them all. Um, but I think it's really, um, again, a sign how important it is behaviorally. And one of the big ones, of course, social proof. You see VCs doing what other VCs are doing, right? Um, Charlie yeah. Munger in his speech talks about the time when all the oil companies were buying fertilizer companies. And he's like, it didn't make sense for Exxon to do it, but because Exxon did it, then Mobile did it, and then you know Arco did it, and they were all just following um, each other uh, <laughs> down the hole, <laughs> so to speak. And again, we were talking about this. You know, maybe VCs will start to come into the seed stage in larger numbers. But it certainly doesn't mean that there will be uh, success there. Yeah, well, no, I would actually say there's going to be some success there. That's some. I wouldn't. I wouldn't necessarily bet against that at all. Just mm. they still have to balance it against a much larger portfolio. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, what was it? We saw Sequoia or NEA raise, you know, over an eight billion dollar fund last time. Like, mm -hmm. you can make all the seed investments you want. It's pretty tough to, to make a dent in that, right? Um, yeah. Well, we're certainly seeing that social proof in the SPAC market, right? Just uh, anyone with a name from Shaq. <laughs> Billy Bean. Billy Bean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and of course, Shamath. He's the Mr. SPAC. Oh, Shamath <laughs> Palapatia, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your future governor. Well, we'll see. <laughs> It could happen. It could happen. It could happen. Do you, do you think, uh, moving some into the news, do you think that um, Trump's uh, impeachment or, you know, success or not will move the markets in any way? Or the market, do the markets care any more about Trump? Hmm. 
it's really, um, I don't think, no, I, I, I think from a, a market standpoint, um, it's neutral. It's an, uh, no, either way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, but politically, I think it's important. Well, I, th I think maybe the, the next most important thing, you know, and this was last week or the week before that even, but job numbers were up. What, 10 million jobs went back, 10 million people went back to work. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, that still doesn't match the market and the people who don't have jobs. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and I think, too, you know, the stimulus bill is likely to pass. Um, that's going to rearm the Robin Hooders and the Redditors, um, we've seen the stimulus here is just extraordinary. Yeah, but there were also some issues with the stimulus, right? I went to my favorite sandwich shop in Phoenix and I went to visit my parents and uh, he was saying like people were calling out sick because they were making the money from the stimulus bill now. And oh, so, yeah. you know, I'm having to like cover all of these shifts, you know, well, you like 30 people in line for a place that normally has like seven. Um, yeah. And if you recall, you know, the University of Chicago did a study back in August after the last the first stimulus payments were issued, and they estimated that 68% of working Americans were better off with the stimulus and not working. The enhanced unemployment benefits plus the... Yeah, yeah. So it's crazy to think that, right? It was the equivalent, they estimated, of over $24 an hour um, for most workers. And so you did see that across many industries, just people choosing not to work, even if they were given, uh, you know, payroll protection benefits or some offer of extended employment. Many chose to stay home and take the stimulus and the unemployment. Um, and you could see that reflected in the economic numbers. I mean, consumer spending dipped, but not by much. I think we had, what, a 5% drop or so? It's, a, it's really the weirdest time. I mean, <laughs> you know, we had a recession that was five times greater than the average of the last seven recessions. 5X. And it happened in 25% of the time. It happened in a quarter of the time. It was deep and trenchant. And yet the stimulus came and I don't know, the, the markets, of course, most of uh, stimulus will find its way into the financial markets. Um, that's certainly been the case for most of our recent history with stimulus and support. Um, and this is no different. But boy, the gambling today is just extraordinary. <laughs> like being yeah, is an obvious example, right? But you have it on, you know, on the bulletin board stocks. I mean, there was a a day three weeks ago where the penny stocks were, um, you know, sixty percent of the volume of stocks traded. Things that you've never heard of, Ascent Solar Technologies. It has a high-minded name, but it went from under a penny to over 50 cents. Uh, yeah. Of course, we wouldn't touch it, but it's a remarkable thing to watch. And, of course, this is gambling. Um, and that's fine, as long as I hope the participants are in with their eyes wide open. <laughs> and they know that this is pure gambling. So. Well, and, and we may continue to see even more you know, we haven't really completely seen the effect of the uh, South African virus strain or the English virus strain or the uh, California virus strain on COVID, uh, how bad they're actually going to be. Um, and while we're not seeing people go to the hospital without it, we may continue to see that things don't get better as quick as we all hope. Right? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I don't we know. Another 
I share a little bit of your reservation. I think this might be a, you know, I've been saying this a bit. I hope I don't uh, chain my thinking to it, you know. <laughs> Whenever no, you pronounce but you should Kind of pounding it in as well. But this might be a sell the news event because even once the vaccines roll out to a substantial portion of the of the population, then we're going to get a real hard look at what the economy looks like and where the holes are and uh, where the disappointments are. My parents got their second dose, by the way. Yeah. Right now, we're still... That's congratulations to them. I'm very happy. Yeah. Nina and Deeran on the front lines. <laughs> That's great, Neil. But uh, yeah, I think, you know, the right now, the markets are still trending higher on hope of a quick recovery and any disappointment there, which is very likely, I think, probability-wise, will be a test for the markets. I, I asked, and I wonder if you did the research between last week and this week, has there ever been an easy recovery? It's a strange question still, right? It, while it may not be V and while it may be, you know, a, a very wide U, has recovery ever come where it didn't feel like it cost as much, where it was more controlled? I'd like to think we're capable of it, having been to the silent retreat with you, but I wonder about whether humanity can do it. Yeah, I... Well, I mentioned to you before the Depression of 1921, right? And that's the uh, James Grant has a wonderful book, uh, The Depression That Cured Itself. And really, there was no intervention. And it depends on who you ask as to whether or not that was severe. But it, you know, because of the price mechanism, just being allowed uh, to work its magic, um, prices reset wages reset at a lower level and the economy began to grow again and i think that that depression lasted some nine months or so one of the shortest ever but if you asked harry truman who lost his haberdashery business in st louis because of that recession was forced out of business he would say it was pretty severe so and from a statistical perspective it seems that was one of the most short-lived and it was very deep as deep as the Great Depression, um, in terms of the decline in GDP, it just recovered itself quickly and there was no intervention. The Fed was too young to really know what tools they could implement successfully and not, and chose to kind of stand aside and let prices fall and adjust. And that led to the recovery more than anything else. So, I mean, good. I just think that right now, you know, uh, certainly seems we've uh, painted ourselves into a corner where to do nothing seems inhumane, um, even though the mechanisms of the market are in place and doing nothing from a policy standpoint doesn't mean that nothing's happening. You know, if prices can adjust quickly, that's probably the best. Um, thoughts on the opposite of the invisible hand, uh, Elon Musk buying Bitcoin. Wow. <laughs> the opposite of visible invisible hand. Obviously, he knew a jump, right? Which he, right? from Game Stonk <laughs> right. to taking Tesla private at four twenty to all of the tweets have a purpose, um, and it's usually something to put wind into the sails of uh, an investment target. Um, it's very cleverly done, but yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty remarkable. And he does have quite the following, we all know. 
quite a missionary and evangelical following of people who support him and his ideas. Um, And so that leads, you know, he was the original Reddit army, I think, before GameStop happened. It was kind of a, you know, we got a glimmer of what this could be. And now with Reddit and the tools we have today, the retail army of traders can really uh, be coalesced into something that's formidable. Um, I wonder about the demographic breakdown of Trump supporters and Reddit uh, follower and the GameStop Reddit, you know, followers. Yeah, it's exactly the same phenomenon, right? Um, to motivate people to political action or, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, we have these platforms which can really reach a large audience. It's amazing because, you know, when I came up in the early days of the markets, early days, you know, to have these... <laughs> You've you been alive since the 1800s. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you had these, you've always had these boiler room operations, you know, the kind of uh, Wolf of Wall Street type things where there's a classic pump and dump. Um, and I worked in my dad's um, medical office a couple of summers. My dad was a pediatrician, endocrinologist. And, you know, because he had an MD and he had a phone number in the phone book, these brokers would call all the time. Uh, telling me how my, you know, how we're going to get rich. My father would give me the calls. So <laughs> that is phenomenal. <laughs> so I'd listen that to. I was trying to choose your job, future job for you. <laughs> well, it really changed my thinking. I was like, what are all these promotional phone calls? And this is certainly not the way to invest, right? <laughs> but uh, it was remarkable. But I just think of that now. Those guys were really. Uh, I mean, cavemen compared to the scale you can amass now with these platforms. And it's the same process, right? The same, it's the same pitch, <laughs> just you've got scale. Well, so, those, those sad stories. I lost everything following Reddit and doing GameStop, trading GameStop because I didn't know how to trade it on my Robinhood account. And it felt too much like a video game. I, I read a couple of stories like that in the last couple of days. I was like, wow. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad those stories are coming out because, you know, most of the time it takes a while and, you only hear the stories of the, you know, unemployed sanitation worker in New York City who turned forty four thousand dollars into four hundred thousand using margin, right? Using a lot of margin. That's, that's one moment the, in time. If you, you, you check three weeks later, it's not going to be the same balance. You must have seen in the past. I had to switch off their margin um, for some people because they let it go too large on some. So people were taking advantage of it on Robinhood. Well, you know, there was a real, I mean, you know, Robin Hood's being sued and traders like Ja Rule <laughs> are saying that, you know, they can't stop us from trading GameStop and all of this. But there's there are real practical reasons in the financial plumbing as to why some of that trading was uh, excessive. And a lot of the, the um, uh, collateral that... Robinhood had to post because those trades wouldn't settle for three days, just became overwhelming. That's why they had to have a capital raise and everything else. They just physically couldn't handle the trade settlements and collateralization of those trades. So a billion dollars overnight they raced for that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and a couple more over the next little bit. <laughs> yeah. Um Super Bowl uh viewership was down. Um did you watch? Uh not not uh, religiously. I checked in on the game. I'm a football fan. It was fan. on TV. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I was mostly cooking for the week. And 
doing stuff around the house. You know, there was no party or anything. It was just family. So I would pause the game, go cook. <laughs> Come back. Okay, let's fast forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seemed like um, it seemed like a uh, event that was just kind of boring this year. It was strange to the entire thing. Um, it was a little just odd. Um, yeah, yeah. Seems yeah, to be celebrating a football game when so many people are hurting in the country. Yeah, this is the Super Bowl, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, I always think. Um, um, I used to have a, a more cynical view of some of these kind of big events, but uh, now I have a, a little warmer feeling for it, you know, in my heart. I think some of those are, especially during dark times like this, a good thing for us to celebrate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but some of it's strange to celebrate too during dark times as well. Like yeah, yeah. Like I used to, I'm, I was an anti-royalist. I'm not British or anything, but I just like. What is this antiquated thing? There, but, you know, Queen Elizabeth was going to come on next week. She just texted me because we're on live. She's not going to come on. But I, week. I think sometimes societies need those kind of breaking case of fire people, right? Like we have Dr. Fauci, I guess. <laughs> like who do you lean on? But when the queen says, everybody be calm, it's going to be okay. Even the people who are anti-royalists, yeah. I'd rather have Dr. Fauci than Queen Elizabeth, i got to tell you. Since she's not going to be... We just came out of the Trump administration. There was no calming effect at all. (laughs) (laughs) No. Everything was... uh, There was breaking case of fire. There was fire everywhere. (laughs) Everything was broken. So so uh, some of those ceremonial figurehead type people, I think... uh, I used to think, what what are those institutions still doing? around but i can see sometimes they have a very valuable certainly psychological effect Did, for so larger societies i know as a value investor you may not be as interested in single day pops on an ipo Did, does that mean you have avoided investing in bumble today <laughs> yeah no i didn't invest in, in bumble. <laughs> I see, of course you know blackstone made a killing on it Wait, so i mean obviously you understand that market very well and again, I know you don't want to make tons of trades, right? Like coming to your office is very different than coming to a normal financial office. There's no news. There's fresh flowers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very nice and relaxing. Um, there's no adrenaline in your office, right? It's like, hey, let's be really thoughtful about everything we're going to do. And let's put people in that same mode when they walk in. Mm-hmm. Um, do you ever feel like you're missing out in that segment? Oh, um, not really, no. No, okay. No, no, but there are, you know, there are, again, advantages that we try to cultivate and work hard to cultivate. And then there are, you know, there are many ways to make money in the markets, but we can avoid the noisy dance hall um, where we can focus more deeply on holding companies for the long term. I mean, look. I've evolved over time, Neil. I haven't always thought the way I'm thinking today, even just five years ago. But I sometimes feel like I'm too slow. <laughs> that I What's that old German saying? Too soon old, too late smart. And uh, I feel sometimes like I've been behind the times. Like just to find a great company that compounds over time for the long term 
and let that company do the work for you is the best investment you could ever make. So are you, are you guys investing in cannabis as a, uh, we're very much looking at that space, but not, we haven't invested yet. It's still kind of the wild west. And of course that's been a subject of the Reddit army too. So that may yet give us an opportunity, but you've got companies like Tilray and the Canadian stocks because they trade on the U S exchanges. Tilray went up 51% on Wednesday, yesterday. Um, <laughs> one day, and the Reddit army's behind them again. And I do think that's certainly a growth industry. Um, but it's still yet too hard to figure out all the players who will succeed, though we're looking. And the same is true in, in certain forms of renewables, like going deep into wind. Um, and some of those developments are very exciting areas for us. But again, I just mean in a general sense, um, Wall Street and the dominant psychology of um, my world in investing is that you need a lot of activity, right? Trading. Um, is the way to make money. Of course, it's in its most extreme form when we see the Reddit army and the um, newly minted day traders, which are reminiscent of 20 years ago or so with the dot-coms. Um, but, you know, if you just think about it logically, the more trades you make, the more decisions you're making. And every decision you make is naturally to invite error. So you're possibly multiplying and certainly are multiplying many errors. Hopefully, they might not derail your investment performance, but they're bound to have an effect over time cumulatively. So a good example of behavioral. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Behavioral. So the, the basically the fewer decisions, but the more th well thought out and deeper decisions you make, the more likely you are to succeed. I, I met a fund that uh, um, the other day only invests in three med tech companies a uh, mm -hmm. year. And I was like, wow, three a year. And he, mm -hmm. you know, he, he saw smaller volume than we did, was a bigger fund than we had. And he said, look, it's really not about trying to see better deal flow. You know, when you get to a certain volume, you're, you're seeing good enough deal flow. It's about making sure we spend the rest of the time adding value. And I was like, wow. <laughs> I was really kind of blown away mm -hmm. um, by, by the conversation. Yeah. Uh, and you see it a lot. I mean, if you look at, uh, again, Buffett is probably the most emblematic, but you can look at Richard Lawrence at Overlook Investments or many of these very successful public equities, uh, long-term investors, um, nomad investment partners, many of these, and you can find their letters online and stuff. And you'll find, of course, they very consistently have concentrated portfolios. I mean, I think for Warren Buffett, his publicly traded portfolio was 25% in Apple stock. I mean, this is billions of dollars, hundreds of billions, <laughs> you know, and, um, and a few bank stocks. I mean, in, in, you know, he had 70% of the portfolio in four positions or something. Um, or you look at um, Richard Lawrence of Overlook, and he says, you know, today I have a concentrated portfolio just like I did, and he's managing $6 billion, $6.6 billion or something now, he said, when I had, you know, 100 million or 60 million under management, you know, we'd have five companies in the portfolio or seven companies. Can, can I ask, is that something you disclose? How many between commodities and um, sometimes you're in directly and sometimes you're in the stock? I am still um, asleep, <laughs> joked. He said, I'm in Cigar Butts Anonymous. I still sometimes can't pass up a bargain. So I, I'm, I'm working now. 
to uh, consolidate a lot of our holdings into a more simple format. And, uh, but it's deep. still not that large number, right? For, for no. professionally. Oh no. Yeah. No, we're, you know, 20, 20 to 24 holdings. Across 20 to 24 all. holdings. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And that's across many different portfolios. So we'll have some portfolios that have, you know, eight or 10 holdings. Um, but uh, much more concentrated in that fashion. Um, do you see this uh, um, article? AstraZeneca is going to ramp up vaccine production to 200 million a month. Yeah. What does uh, your team think of that, Neil? Is it even possible? I mean, we've had so many supply shortages, which is one of my concerns about the real economy. We talked about unemployment and some other things, but I well, think. Semiconductor, right? We're just we're, when we talk about all the components are having shortages everywhere. Right. Um, right. Yeah. You, you know, I, now I look at all of the news coming out of every public company and say, did they learn a little too much from Trump? Um, do they think... In terms look, of their promotional abilities? or Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Um, certainly we see it out of, you know, I, I think, um, thank God for Moderna, but I also think, you know, it's been a lot of, they, they've got a lot more fanfare than maybe uh, I would have thought they, they should have gotten. Um, yeah. Those super important technology... I think people are paying many years in advance uh, on the value of what it should be today. Um, Can you say that in a different way, Neil? Yeah. So, so a company's worth whatever it's worth today. So but you're saying price of a stock today? Yeah. So the the price of the stock today is maybe more reflective of where their uh, pipeline is going because right. there's not enough Moderna stock to go around. Right. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I wonder when I see uh, companies like AstraZeneca say something like that, you know, are they are they trying to get their stock price back in, you know, where it should be? Are they are they taking advantage of the fact that um, they've been underappreciated for a long time and now they know they're about to get a pop? And so they might as well get a bigger pop. Um, Two hundred billion is a lot. Oh, so, gosh. Yeah. A month. So yeah. 200 million of anything, like pennies or <laughs> it's just a lot. Specks of dust, anything, yeah. It's a yeah. Lot. So am I skeptical? Yeah, I'm a little skeptical. Um, it's not an RNA vaccine, though, so it may not have the same components. I haven't looked into what adjuvants it's using and whether they're rare or hard to get. Uh, or, yeah. or, but, or if shortages or bottlenecks. Yeah, but, but I'm skeptical. <laughs> Let's start yeah. with that. Right, right, right. Yeah, it's very funny. I um, wrote a little note to clients back when the GameStop thing was happening a couple weeks ago, and it created a little confusion. My clients were asking, do you think, Chris, that um, short selling should be banned? Because, you know, first this was... Yeah, hey, I, I even asked you the same question. And of course I don't, you know. I mean, I, there are a lot of... There's a lot of unseemly behavior on both sides, but I do think you know, again, if you go back to the psychology of human misjudgment, right, we always need some counterweight to our conclusions. And short sellers are generally the only group that provides a counterbalance to generally rosy forecast from company managements, right? Company managements are always projecting the most rosy future, not always, but 99.9% .9 of them. Very few are the putting it on the line and giving you the honest truth. And you have to ferret out that information again by reading footnotes and digging deeper and 
talking to the neighbors of the CEO. <laughs> and, and short sellers perform a very useful function in that regard. And of course, there are abuses, just like there are on both sides of that trade. But it's a very necessary informational uh, counterweight to what normally passes for the rosy judgment of managements. And, you know, like you're saying, even with AstraZeneca, hey, we're going to produce these, you know, two million <laughs> doses a month. It's amazing. 200, 200. Oh, 200 million, sorry. Yeah, two, yeah, two, two million. I'm a hundred X short on that. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's even that daily. That's not good enough. No, 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 that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, but some of this frothiness that we're talking about in life science is also apparent when you look at the average size of M&A uh, activity over the climbing over the last three years, right? So here's a stat for you on this. Um, in 2017, the average price uh, for uh, an acquisition target was just sub 200 million. Um, in 2019, it hit a billion um, as the average price. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it's gone down a little bit in 2020, but those stocks are certainly soaring. And right, it's one of the things that you're not seeing is you're not really seeing the emergence of a new biotech blockbuster company, right? Because they're all getting acquired. They're all getting acquired for, for big numbers. Um, that worries me a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. Like just as a human, forget as an investor, um, as a human, when, when there's more great companies working on differentiated products, um, they're going to put more resources in versus, you know, how many divisions can AstraZeneca really focus on? Yeah. And, 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 and they've got to fight for resources from a larger bureaucracy. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, I, I want to see more, um, we'll call it mid-tier um, uh, biotech companies and medtech companies come out, right? I don't want to see, uh, j just as a, again, as a human, right? Um, as a VC, please uh, keep acquiring at large sizes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but I, I think it's important to just kind of note that trend. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, there's the famous old AT&T example, how they, you know, just kept buying up all the startups and fiber optics and everything and just kept that, kept our copper wire infrastructure much longer than its uh, use-by date by stymieing the competition, by buying them and, and basically um, putting them to sleep within the large organization. So I hope that trend, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of dynamism still in that space. So I do hope that that trend can uh, not become overwhelming. You know? Um. Uh, a couple more. We always cover SPACs because that's always fun. <laughs> right? A regular no, segment. Um, no one needs to read McKay's book <laughs> on the madness of crowds, right? Extraordinary popular <laughs> illusions and the madness of crowds. We've, we're living it. We're living it. Uh, Colin Kaepernick did not read it as he started a $250 million SPAC, right? Um, oh, maybe he doesn't have to read it. He's going to benefit. He's Colin Kaepernick. Yeah, it's Colin Kaepernick. You get 20% of the of the equity in that thing. It, it is nice. It's weird to watch. But I was reading this stat, and then I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, so I'm going to quote it badly, um, so forgive me. But I want to say it was like 70% of the IPO volume last year um, or, or this year over the last 12 months has been SPACs. Yeah. yeah. Side, right? Um, and, it, you know, 
it makes me wonder. So I started to kind of wonder about the costs of going public, right? So yes, you pay a percentage, right? To um, you pay, we'll call it 10% when you go public of your company value to get it all ready to take a public. And so SPACs are saying, okay, you're only paying 20% now, but I actually don't know the real comparative costs, right? Um, is it really that much, you know, now you're suddenly you're public tomorrow, you know, where today going and doing a roadshow is just lots of Zoom meetings, right? So is that really so hard on the executives? Does that really take them away so much time um, from running the company? Yeah. I feel they have to get back on the planes. Maybe there's an argument to be made, right? But not yeah. as much during Zoom time. Uh, well, I think, uh, yeah, you're thinking of the practical um, and administrative sort of aspects of an IPO roadshow and what it requires. And what the real costs are, right? So yeah. is it equal? Some people may say yes, and that's an argument people are making for SPACs. In the end, you lose a bunch of value in your company because all the top people are out pitching bankers where – We've done that for you, mm-hmm. um, but I don't know. You know, I I, I don't have. Uh, even though I've kind of read a, a lot about the frameworks, you know, we've done a little research there. I'm still not sure one is better than the other. Um, yeah, I think conceptually it just depends on where you are because a SPAC has uh, high fees. You're going to get ripped off <laughs> as a company going public, but you're going to get ripped off once, and there's some certainty. So you can kind of negotiate it in the price. And then the sponsor of the SPAC, once you've gone public or merged in, they're on your team. So they're working with you to enhance the value of the company. Um, An investment bank that's helping you with an IPO never works for you. But in some sense, they are keeping the ecosystem alive and thriving because they're working for the system. Because if I'm Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or pick your bank, Merrill, I'm, um, I'm thinking of my next five IPOs too, right? <laughs> this is one, but I've got to keep the mill going. And so I can't um, blow up this deal and then hope to get other deals. So you're very much concerned about consistency. But from a company standpoint, you're a little bit at odds because the bank is not really working for you directly. In some sense, they are. But really, what the bank wants, what's ideal for them is to have a first day pop, right? So underprice the IPO, which means as an invest, as the company, you're leaving money on the table, which is the perennial grumble from companies, you know, going uh, IPO that they didn't raise as much as they could have given the first day pop in shares uh, prices. Um, but that's what the uh, investment banks would like to see because it fuels the desire for future IPOs and, and builds their queue. Um, so I think there's a kind of uh, uh, a trade-off in terms of the dynamics, whether you want certainty um, and one big price tag, or whether you want, and you know, if you can stomach the uncertainty, possibly a lower price tag, but you still might leave money on the table. There's just a lot of uncertainty there. And then you've got other things like the green shoe and some other things that investment banks can do um, that generate income potentially for them at the cost to the company. You know, but again, it's about the ecosystem for the banks. And when you have a SPAC sponsor 
at first. <laughs> it's a bit uh, predatory and extractive, but then eventually you shake hands and become friends and hopefully build the value in them. And hopefully get covered. Hopefully get covered, yes. <laughs> well, there's not enough trading volume, right? Right. Um, are, are, are a lot of, I have, I'm not actually looking at the trading volume of the SPACs. Are a lot of them having issues with that? Um, I can't say, Neil. I don't You're know. not paying enough attention either. To I'm it. not paying attention as much to the volumes. And I do know that there's, you know, um, because of the warrants and the other dilution, there's a, a lot of hedge funds being formed to short SPACs. <laughs> Just as a matter of course, you know, like back when I was a, in the early days of the market, you had any time a company traded at more than 12 times sales, you know, it was a guaranteed short to make money. But now you've got companies like Lemonade and Snowflake and Shopify. I mean, they're trading at 60 to 100 times sales. It's like, whoa, how, how did that happen? And it almost doesn't matter what they do. It's like failure of imagination on your part, Chris. You <laughs> <laughs> have to stretch my imagination to the breaking point. But hey, if you live long enough, there's almost nothing you won't really see. You know, I, I don't pay much attention to the Wall Street analysts at all, right? I don't really read analyst reports uh, very often. I guess I've read them, but uh, Rich Greenfield, does that ring a bell? I guess it made good VC news that he started a fund and he's supposed to be a good Wall Street analyst. Do you have any ideas? No, I don't. Well, Rich, we wish you the best of luck if you're listening to our podcast. Um, he's investing in telecom, media, and tech. And I was like, I was surprised that it Yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you know what bank he was with? No. Yeah. I, I didn't look it up. Yeah. Um, but switching over to venture, huh? Switching over to venture. Um, I, I guess uh, the share of deals in Silicon Valley is going to drop below 20%. Where, you know, just seven years ago, six years ago, it was, um, what, 60 or 70% of the market was still Silicon Valley? Yeah. It makes you wonder, why would you ever move to San Francisco now? The money is still there. The, the funds haven't moved. Work is there, but they're they're investing other places now. So, but yeah, yeah. Do you really need to move if you if you can build a good, talented company in a lower cost environment? Um, certainly, you don't have to live there. And look, I am very um, alarmed. It's just relentless what's happening to commercial real estate in San Francisco. I mean, Salesforce is the largest um, uh, commercial lessor in California, and they just announced that they're going to have a permanent work-from-home um, allocation. And that follows Uber, which just had a brand-new Mission Bay headquarters built. And so you've just got massive vacant square footage. So it's a good time to come to San Francisco to do a startup then, since you're still close to capital and it may be cheap? Are we going to see this cycle start all over again? It's possible. It's possible things will get much, much cheaper. But I'm just saying, like, the, the, the for commercial real estate across the country, it's a very ugly picture. But when you look at some of the old uh, centers of strength, San Francisco, New York, it's just uh, the news is relentless in terms of its uh, – ugliness <laughs> it's brutal it's just brutal so lots of lots of funds are moving i know i haven't read lots of rias are moving but lots of pe funds and lots of hedge funds are moving to florida is that something you guys ever think about um no not not yet not yet not yet 
in the future when 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 you're I'm not averse to anything, but I don't know Florida. Florida's done a great job marketing. I you know have a dear friend who runs a fund and he moved from Manhattan Beach here in Southern California near Los Angeles. Nice place. Austin. Um, and Austin, he found, was just almost as expensive as California, which is saying something. <laughs> because they have no state income tax, of course, and we're up in double digits here at the top rate. So so nothing you, nothing right now is getting you to think, even rethink where you where you guys are located. Yeah, no, not 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 yet. No. Not yet. Not until they start offering ridiculous incentive packages to movie. <laughs> right. We'll have to see. I mean, California is at a crossroads, right? But we could go the way of New Jersey and just keep hiking rates and drive more business away, but we'll see. I mean, that's what you guys are doing. Chummits for governor. <laughs> <laughs> Bitcoin can solve all our problems. Just ask him and Elon. Um, uh, I think, hold on one second. My dog's barking in the background here. There we go. That's nice. Zen, hello. Zen, yeah. My puppy's name is Zen. I'm not really a puppy anymore. 98 pound Bernadoodle. Mm. Um, it's been interesting, you know, as I've uh, uh, been reading more, finally people are starting to say uh, the areas of investment, growth, and venture capital. Um, are healthcare and logistics. <laughs> I'm like, wait, we've been talking about logistics for years as, as a major issue for everything. Right. right. Especially since everything's mass produced now, or, you know, all the, sorry, all of the, the most bought items are mass produced, meaning there's going to be, you know, logistical problems somewhere uh, in the supply chain. And then um, we've obviously been talking about healthcare for a while. So it's interesting to see both of those things getting a lot more attention the last I've probably seen five or six articles on that. I saw another one today from Goldman. I think that's a uh, insight into a larger trend, Neil. You know, we've been talking about commodities and in a deeper sense, you know, what was sexy or what is still sexy investment wise are so-called asset light companies, softwares eating the world, you know, um, companies that have uh, just tremendous sales growth and that are living out in the ether in the virtual world. And companies that dig in the dirt, <laughs> that have equipment that rusts and all that have been just non-sexy. But that is, of course, at the core, when you talk about logistics and other things, this is the real physical world, which has been underinvested in for quite some time. And for forever, I, yeah, right? Yeah. Infrastructure, everything, yeah. Yeah, and that's really what I think we're seeing a turn in. Um, and especially since the, you know, ever since August of last year, we've seen the NASDAQ, the tech heavy index sort of underperform the, you know, old nuts and bolts and hard assets uh, and asset heavy industries. Which just seems interesting because they're going to become more and more valuable, obviously. Right. Um, how many freeways have to collapse before PE says we should start investing in tons more freeways than we ever have before? Right. right, right. And and build them better. I mean, there's probably a technology, but we still we gosh, we need the concrete and <laughs> and the and all the regions that go into it, reagents and the you know, substrates and we need the raw materials and what's an electric vehicle but a rolling pile of copper? We need the copper. <laughs> what's a wind farm but a lot of copper? Um and you know, uh the things that move it are gonna become more important, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Chris, anything else you want to say before we end our podcast? 
Uh, no, it's been great talking to you, Neil, and I'm so glad we had Dan and anyone who's uh, still with us who's listened even for a brief moment. We really appreciate your interest, and we hope that you've learned something today, and we'll take any suggestions you have on how we can provide you with more useful information, thoughtful information, and things that help give you an insight into investing and just the larger world. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Let's end with the bell. I'm always ready to come back to my breathing, Neil. There's a lot of healing and nourishing inside of us. <laughs>